0: Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started.
1: And Let's read verse 16 down to verse 20. This is the parable. It says, Then he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow all of my fruits. And he said, this I will do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, there it is, this night thy soul shall be required of thee or demanded of thee then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? I want you to notice in verse 16, then Jesus spake a parable unto them. The-
0: okay, I'm just going to pause right there and uh, say this is some other nameless preacher. He's probably quite famous in his circles. I just didn't bother to look it up. I I don't care. Uh, when I do these Sunday sermons, the point... Uh, that I originally wanted to make, I think, is already made. It doesn't actually matter what denomination the preacher is or who the preacher is. Uh, You've had a a very broad cross-section, and you get to hear what Christians hear, Christians in general, get to hear in general every week. Every week. This is the Christian doctrine that you've been hearing every week. And sometimes it's remarkably similar. Most of the time it's whiplash as one preacher tells you one thing and another preacher tells you the entirely opposite thing. And we're not talking about heterodox preachers. We're talking about everyday, run-of-the-mill, mainstream preachers for the most part. Every now and then we'll go progressive like we did the last couple of weeks. And that just makes your eyeballs bleed. So we're back to a very mainstream sermon about a topic that uh, we have been lightly discussing over on Red Letters. You know Red Letters, right? Uh, Patreon.com/slash Red Letters. Patreon.com/slash Red Letters. Just uh, go over there, take a visit, grab a free book. You're gonna love it. We're uh, we're studying the teachings of Jesus and why I think they might be among the worst practical and Moral teachings in history. That should be interesting. Come on over and join the conversation. Some of that conversation has been focused around this story. So I wanted to give you a good sermon on this story. I couldn't find a good sermon, so you got this one (laughs) instead. This is actually very, uh, very, very typical. And so we're going to hear this preacher. I'm going to try to let him have some long segments of talk time before interrupting, but you know me. It's really hard not to jump in, and this story of the foolish farmer can be particularly triggering for those uh, suffering from a kind of a religious PTSD. So just note that, and probably half of this sermon is just scare tactics, which, by the way, is also pretty standard fare. Let's listen to some more of this preacher uh, giving his take on the story of the foolish farmer.
1: Word parable in the Greek is the word parabolé, and that means to throw or to lay alongside. Parabolé to lay alongside, and what? A parable is, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is going to give them a spiritual lesson behind this earthly story.
0: Okay, already I've got to interrupt. This is, this is a trope. This sermon is full of tropes, Christian tropes. One of the more common tropes is that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's just BS. It's not true at all. That's not what a parable is. A parable is just a common form of storytelling. I mean, it's common in that it's purely secular. It's no more religious in nature than, say, a fable. But Christians like to own the parable because Jesus used parables as a way of teaching. And I I think he was a particularly... Uh, poor user of parables. He he misused parables, but we've talked about that before, and I'm not going to go back over that ground here. The thing that you need to understand is that when Christians try to co-opt a common word, it's usually for pretty bad, pretty nefarious reasons, and a lot of Christians actually believe that this is some kind of religious thing. A parable is not a religious thing. It has nothing to do with religion or spirituality or heavenly truths or anything like that. You can use a parable for all kinds of purposes. So, uh, just just bear that in mind. This is another one of those areas where Christians just try to co-opt dishonestly a, a thing that is very common in secular.
1: About this foolish farmer, he is called the rich fool. This is the parable, the name of the parable, the rich fool. Notice verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man. And then again in verse 20, it says, But God said unto him, Thou fool. Now, if God says you're a fool, guess what? You're a fool.
0: This is another very common trope that you will hear Several times a week, in uh, Sunday morning sermons and Bible studies, and uh, church grounds and uh, Christian families, this is this is just a common trope. When if God calls you a fool, then you're a fool. Now Jesus has a particular um, uh, instruction that no one should ever call anyone else a fool, and yet there is this um, this understanding that God calls people fools all the time. So this is one of those do as I say do, not do as I do type things for the Christian God. Uh, one famous use of fools that Christians refer to all the time is that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Therefore, Christians feel pretty confident in calling atheists fools and using other uh, invectives as, as well. So just bear that in mind. The Christian use of the word fool is, um, is another one of those Christian tropes and also another one of those Christian inconsistencies.
1: Big time, right? If I say you're a fool, ah, you're going to take it with a grain of salt. Not a very nice thing to do. But if God says you're a fool, you're a fool. Now, what does He mean by fool? He's not talking about His intellectual capability. He's talking about His moral life. He's not foolish in the area of He doesn't have a quick mind or an intelligent mind. He's saying He was foolish because of the way that He Live So it's a folly in the area of the way he lived, his moral behavior. There's a lot of people with high IQ, but they live sinful lives. There's a lot of people that have education, many of them educated beyond their intelligence, by the way.
0: But this is uh, another Christian trope that you can be educated beyond your intelligence. Uh, Christians have a love-hate relationship with education. They like to give lip service to education, at least these days, because they don't want to be seen as uneducated. But they used to wear a lack of education, a lack of formal secular education, like a badge of courage. Well, okay, so it really depends on uh, their mood. But this is this is something that you hear in churches all the time, a kind of nod to education and yet a backhanded compliment slash slap in the face with regard to education. There is a reason for that. The New Testament uh, also gives a lot of lip service to education, and usually when education is brought up in the New Testament, it's in a negative connotation
1: they don't know how to live or they live in rebellion against god or they live very foolishly well we're going to see this foolish farmer lived as though god did not exist he was a practicing atheist
0: and there you go there there's there's the payoff right there you know he was a fool because you know somewhere back in the old testament some goat herder said of the fool has said in his heart there is no god and this guy, the foolish farmer, must have been a practicing atheist.
1: He lived like God wasn't there, and he lived as though that his life was going to go on forever and ever. Now, there are three divisions to this that I want to point out. The first is the purpose of the parable. And we have to back up to verse 13, down to verse 15. Whenever you're interpreting a parable, I always recommend you back up into the text and find out why the parable was given. If you discover why Jesus gave the parable, you can discover the meaning and the purpose of the parable. Back up to verse 13, down to verse 15. It says that one of the companies said unto him, Master, referring to Jesus, speak to my brother. By the way, the word master there means rabbi or teacher. Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And notice that, by the way, this isn't this isn't a request of Jesus or of his brother. This is a demand. Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you?
0: Okay. Uh, just to note, I think this is an important point to understand this story and understand why it's kind of awful. Uh, a, a person in a crowd... Uh, asked Jesus to intercede because his brother, most likely the older brother, because he is the older brother would be the one who handled the inheritance, was stealing the money. He, he was not, in fact, dividing the money fairly. And so the younger brother asks Jesus to intercede. By the way, he recognizes Jesus as a rabbi. Can someone tell me how Jesus became a rabbi? Just a self-appointed rabbi. But this man says, Rabbi, uh, can can you put in a, a good word here? Because my brother is stealing my inheritance. And Jesus basically says, who died and made me God? <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, um, this is another one of these mysterious occasions, kind of like when the uh, rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, uh, good master, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why you call me good? Only God is good. As, as if Jesus is saying, I'm not God. Why are you treating me like that? (laughs) So this is another potentially rich person coming to Jesus. And Jesus is like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not your God. (laughs) I'm not who died, who died and made me God. Um, it's just, it's an interesting thing, and uh, I don't want to get too stuck on it, but Christians generally don't talk about this. I think they just don't see this particular uh, inconsistency. But if you speak to someone who says Jesus never claimed to be God, and, and those people are out there, these are the types of passages that they tend to point to. Jesus is pretty much denying any godlike power or authority here he says i'm not i'm not the judge of uh such matters well jesus who
1: is question mark jesus asked a question back and then said he unto them verse 15 here's the key to the parable take heed and beware of covetousness or greed for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses so
0: okay so before he uh, before this preacher gives his explanation, which which I think is pretty awful, uh, pretty pretty close to the way the story is told, but I, I think it's pretty awful. And I just want to highlight this: the man is saying, "My brother's stealing from me and won't give me my part of the inheritance." Jesus turns to him and says, "Why are you being so greedy?" As, as if. Wanting the money owed you is greed. Jesus gives this parable as if to say, you shouldn't care about that money stuff. Jesus would not do the right thing here, which is to tell the thieving brother to stop, because it would uh, cause a person to become wealthy. And Jesus was not about the business of helping people become wealthy. He never did anything to help people gain money even money that's owed to them. And so because this younger brother wanted the money owed to him, Jesus goes on this diatribe in the form of this parable about greed.
1: The key to understanding the parable that we just read of the story is that it's about covetousness and that life does not consist in the abundance of things that we possess. Now, go back with me to verse 13 it says there that one of the companies said unto him. Now, if you go to verse 1 and look at it for just a quick second, you'll see that in the context, Jesus is speaking to thousands of people. The Scripture says that an innumerable multitude of people, a great crowd were gathered around Jesus. That's the Bible's way of saying tens of thousands. They... Okay,
0: let me stop you right there. That is not the Bible's way of saying tens of thousands. There is no numerical value here. It, it's just saying there were a lot of people there, a lot of uncounted people there. How many people? It doesn't matter. There's a lot of people. It could have been a few hundred. It could have been 70 or 80. It could have been a thousand, but this preacher's assertion that it had to be. Tens of thousands. This is this is a uh, Trumpian exaggeration, if I've ever heard one. But this is this is also a common tactic with a certain kind of Christian to exaggerate greatly the the numbers when when they, they look like they're going to be good for Jesus. To exaggerate the numbers of people who were following him. The Bible doesn't give a number. He says it has to mean tens of thousands. Hey, wow, why do people let preachers get away with this stuff? Why? I would also remind you that no matter how many people there were uh, in that particular crowd, they all abandoned him a few months later. So apparently they weren't picking up, what he was putting down.
1: We're all there to hear him teach. And he was talking about spiritual matters. He was talking about not worry and not being afraid, that God will take care of you. He said that we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And think about it, right in the middle of Jesus' discourse, he's preaching, some guy jumps up, interrupts him, totally rude, totally out of sync that's going on. The opposite of what Jesus was teaching about. And He said, Jesus, will You you command My brother, will You tell My brother to rightfully divide the inheritance with Me? Isn't it funny? Whenever there's a will, there's a fight. Someone said whenever there's a will, there's a family. I saw a cartoon once that showed a family gathered in a lawyer's office for the reading of a will. And they're all rubbing their hands with anticipation, and the lawyer rolled it out, started to read, says, I, Jim Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. (laughs) What a shocker, right? Wherever there's a will, there's greed, there's covetous, there's a fight. So this man, and we don't know if he was the younger of the two brothers or how many brothers there were, but he, he had a beef, and he's kind of anonymous. It says a certain man. He stood up in the crowd. And Jesus is preaching, and he just stood up and said, can you, Jesus, Master, Teacher, Rabbi, can you tell my brother that he needs to divide the inheritance with me? Now Jesus says to him, who made me a judge or a ruler over you? So Jesus refused to get involved in this man's family matters. And that's, I believe, because Jesus didn't come to solve our problems. This man wanted Jesus to start a new TV program called the People's Court, right?
0: Just, I I didn't want this to pass uh, without comment. It's a sound bite. You can put it on a bumper sticker, make it your ringtone. Jesus did not come to solve our problems.
1: What's with all these stupid courtroom shows in the daytime? All the judges and You know, it's like we got nothing better to do than to watch people fight in a courtroom, you know? So it's like, Jesus, will you start a new TV program? We'll call it the People's Court, and my brother and I will be the first ones there. It'll be a hit. Jesus says, I I didn't come to deal with these matters. Now, Jesus will come in His second coming to judge and he'll judge righteously. But this time he came to die for the sins of the world. He came to redeem man. He came to save man from sin. He he didn't come to get involved in these excuse me, disputes that he wanted him to resolve. That was for the law courts the times of the day. And I believe that Jesus knew, detected in this man's uh, point, that the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart.
0: And this is how... uh the Christian ad hominem works. This is, this is just such a casual ad hominem, and it's all through the way Jesus tells stories. It is a casual and unexplained ad hominem against whoever the quote-unquote villain of the story is. And it's interesting that the villain of the story is not the older brother who is uh, holding the inheritance. The villain of the story here is the person who wants his fair share of the inheritance. And the Christian is left to wonder, well, why is this person the villain? What is there in this story that suggests he should be getting a verbal beat down here? And the only response they can give is, well, this man must have been greedy. He must have been covetous. He must have been a lover of money. Uh, that's, that's the problem. He had a, he had a problem with his heart. That's really what's wrong. The story doesn't actually say that. Okay. And it doesn't show that. It just shows a man who has probably tried a number of ave- uh, avenues and other people who are more important didn't, uh, didn't. Get involved. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not going to help you get any money, fool. I'm a preacher of poverty. You, you come to me to help you get your money? That's not going to happen. I'm not here to solve that problem for you. You must be greedy. So what we have uh, is the desire to have money properly owed you is equal to greed. We don't even need those caveats. Just the desire to gain money is also equal to greed and covetousness. In Jesus' eyes, let's see how this plays out in the story and in the sermon.
1: Jesus knew what was really going on in this man's heart. And so Jesus warned...
0: Okay, again, how does Jesus know what's going on in this man's heart? I've been in discussions for weeks, and I'm told that Jesus has a human brain and he's not a mind reader, and he's not doing any magic here and yet this preacher says no, he knows he knows what's, he knows the deep truth of this man's heart.
1: How exactly of covetousness, take heed, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he Possesses. You know, it's interesting though that people want Jesus to fix their problems but not change their hearts. They want Jesus to fix their problems but not change the heart. And the problem is the problem of the heart. You get a change of heart and God will work in your marriage. You get a change of heart and God will heal your life. You
0: Do you notice any victim blaming here? I, I hear uh, the distinct tone of victim blaming if you're having a problem with your marriage your finances your family your job you are the one with a bad and sinful heart you fool
1: you need first to be forgiven of your sins to have your problems resolved the man
0: right you're having a problem it's because of your sins Didn't we hear this all the way back in Job?
1: His real problem was covetousness. Notice he said unto them, verse 15. So he's speaking not just to the man, but to the crowd that's gathered around. And he gives them first a warning, verse 15. Take heed, beware of covetousness. That's first the warning from the lips of Jesus. Now, what is covetousness? Literally, the word covetous means to fix the desire upon. To fix your desire upon. It's the inward desire to have more. And it is an interesting that it's the sin that we celebrate and that God condemns. If you
0: Hang on. What's wrong with wanting to have more than what you have right now? D- do Christians even hear themselves? Why would that be a sin?
1: You are covetous. You get to have your picture on the front of Money Magazine, right? You get exalted as being a hero. Look how rich you are. Look how powerful you are. But yet, God in His Word condemns this attitude sin of the heart. It's interesting that we go to jail for lying. We can go to jail for stealing. We go to jail for murder, but we don't go to jail for covetous. And I say that because the tenth of the 10 commandments is thou shalt not what? Covet. Okay. I,
0: there's so much, there's so much wrong with this. First of all, do you actually want people to go to jail for, for wanting more? <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of silly in and of itself, but this is a kind of a, a Christian trope. Uh, and they they use these kind of false equivalents, yeah, you go to jail for rape and murder and theft you You should go to jail for coveting <laughs> because you know hate is equal to murder and lust
1: is equal to adultery. False equivalent, See much ten commandments, commandment number ten, thou shalt not. Covet. Psalm 103, or Psalm 10, verse 3, the Lord abhors the covetous person. That can lead also covetousness to other sins. You know when King David sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery? Thou shalt not commit adultery. It was because he coveted her, his neighbor's wife. And then he lied to cover up his sin. And then he also stole another man's wife. And then he also committed murder. Jesus knows that the sin of covetousness can lead to the breaking of all these other commandments. You don't think it's a, a big thing. God knows the issues. God knows that this covetousness can lead to other sins in your life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by the way, that's the way that verse should be translated. The love of money is the root not of all evil, but all kinds of evil. So Jesus warns us to take heed, to watch out for covetousness. And then He tells us why. Verse 15, look at the text. He says, because a man's life consists not in the abundance of things that he possesses. So He's given us the rationale or the reason. This is the reason you ought to be careful not to be covetous, because your life is more than the things which you possess. This is a life-giving principle. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it said, He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, and he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. By the way, those words were written by King Solomon, who had more things than anyone could ever want, and he basically said they're all empty. They're all vain. There's no purpose or meaning in them. Remember before you were a Christian? Your so-called B.C.'s, before Christ days? And even as a young teenager growing up, huh, you wanted that bike, and you and then you wanted that car. And I remember when I was about 13, I had a friend who had an older brother. His name was Don Gregory. And he was in high school, and I was in elementary school still. But, but, but he had a surfboard. And it was cool. And he had a Woody. And it was cool. And I wanted a surfboard. And I wanted a Woody. And I wanted it to be like Don, you know. And then I want those tennis shoes. And I want those shoes. And I want those clothes. And I want the hairdo. And, you know, you, 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 you kind of lust and desire. But it's like drinking salt water. You ever thought about that? It only makes you thirsty for more and eventually leads to your death. If you're ever out at sea lost, don't drink the ocean. It'll kill you. It'll only make you thirsty for more. That's what materialism is like. I want more. I want more. Never enough money. Never a big enough house. Never a nice enough car. Never enough clothes. It's kind of like the Amilda Marcos syndrome, right? Never enough shoes. What will I do with all my shoes? I'll build bigger shoe closets. And you just keep building bigger barns and bigger barns and the eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. So Jesus gave the parable. Why? Two reasons. To warn us, beware of covetousness, and to reveal to us that life is more than our possessions. Life is found in knowing God. If I were to reduce the message of the parable, it would be reduced to don't forget God. That's the problem this man Forgot God now I want to move back to the parable, the picture of the foolish farmer in verse sixteen to verse twenty. Why did God call this man a fool?
0: okay, now we get to a uh, part of the sermon that I think is germane, and uh, we'll want to comment on this goes a little bit long he's going to give five points uh, as I mentioned earlier, three of them. Are typical Christian scare tactics, and so the sermon is going to get a little bit rough here for some. If you suffer uh, a little bit emotionally from uh, from abusive Christian doctrine, this uh, this parable is the fount of many Christian abuses. In that way, psychological abuse. So, just a trigger warning the waters can get a little rough from here.
1: Well, let me tell you why he didn't call him a fool. He didn't call him a fool because he was rich. Don't misinterpret this parable to conclude that it's a message on you're not supposed to be rich. God gave him the bumper crop. Nothing wrong with a farmer building bigger barns and putting his food in storage. He, he didn't condemn this man because he was rich. You know, nowhere in the Bible are riches in and of themselves condemned. Somebody go praise God. Preach it, brother.
0: Says the rich preacher.
1: But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil.
0: Yeah, You notice how preachers who gain more and more money, they're never guilty of loving money. What does it even mean, the love of money? They have lots of money, lots of things. But but they have money the right way. Not like you schlubs trying to worm your way into a promotion or chasing a business opportunity so that you can get more and more and more. Unlike me. I have money in the righteous way
1: and covetousness is that i want more i want more i want more i want more and you'll lie to get more and you'll steal to get more and you'll murder to get more and you'll commit adultery to get more
0: which which, which doesn't describe uh the majority of people who who are just going to work and who want a nicer house or a nicer car what he's what he is suggesting again is one of those Christian over the top false equivalencies. You're going to lie, uh, cheat, steal, <laughs> become a drug addict. You know whatever it takes to get more, and that's just not the that that's just not the reality for uh,
1: the vast majority of people out there. Never be satisfied. You'll always be thirsty. This is basically what's pro- what the problem is with mankind. There's an emptiness in our life that only can be filled with God. And when, no,
0: there is not. There is no such thing as a God shaped hole. Just look at all of the Christians you know and see that they are still going through the same rat race as you are in the same way with the same anxieties and so forth. There is no God shaped hole getting filled with Christianity.
1: God is no, not a part of our life. Nothing can fill that void. And we'll spend our whole life searching. You ever seen that foolish bumper sticker years ago? He who dies with the most toys wins? That's a dumb sticker. If it's on your cart, let me know. I'll come and help you tear it off your car. He who dies with the most toys wins? Really? How silly. How foolish. So he wasn't a fool because he was rich. Both the rich and the poor can be covetous. You can be dirt poor and have a covetous heart. You can be rich and have a covetous heart, nor because he stored his grain. There's no indication in the story that this man was a fool because he stored. You know, God tells us to consider the ant, how the ant stores away for the winter, and and that we're to be wise and take care of our family. And There's nothing sinful in that. But again, he totally disregarded God. Now, let me give you the five reasons from this parable why this man was foolish if you want to write them down. Number one, is because he thought only of himself. He thought only of himself. Now I want you to notice that when the foolish farmer looked at his bumper crop, which was a blessing from God, he forgot to thank God, and he thought only of himself.
0: So he forgot to thank God. This is going to be a theme throughout here, and I just want to highlight this. Uh, he didn't. He didn't give God the thanks money or the protection money or whatever it is God supposedly demanded. He didn't. He didn't thank God. In fact, we don't actually know in this story that he didn't thank God. Uh, okay. So when when preachers try to explain this story, they have to invent. A lot of things that the story doesn't say, because if you just read the story with the words on the page, this man seems innocent and God seems like a monster. And so you have to explain why God uh, takes the attitude toward this man that he does. And if you're if you're a rich American, <laughs> kind of like this guy, you have to say, "Oh, it wasn't because of the money, or it wasn't because he, uh, you know, stored up." Uh, treasures record because he had a retirement plan because, you know, all the rich preachers, they have all that. <laughs> so it's not that. It's not, you know, God is not telling you uh, people out in my audience who are donating generously to my church that there's anything wrong with that. I actually contend that is the heart of what God is saying. But I talk about this story over on Red Letters. you can You can go see it there. I'm not going to... I'm not going to duplicate all that now. Patreon.com slash red letters. We uh, we talk about all this. But uh, this man, to exonerate God, this preacher, to exonerate God, has to vilify the person in the story in a way that even the storyteller doesn't do.
1: When you look at your material blessings, do you think and thank God, or do you think only of yourself and how you can use them for your pleasures. Go back to verse 17 and down to verse 19. There are six eyes and five my. So 11 personal pronouns. I want you to notice them.
0: Okay. Uh, as he brings these out, I just want you to notice the irrelevancy of this point. I and my. You know, if you're talking about a thing that belongs to you or is your responsibility, you say mine. And if you're, if you're talking about yourself, you say I. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this context, the preacher is uh, suggesting that because this man talks about himself and his business, that that automatically means he's not thinking about anyone else.
1: He says in verse 17, what shall I do to bes- because of I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And verse 19, I will say unto my soul, Thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. So, why was this farmer foolish? He was foolish because all he could see was himself. Right.
0: Just utterly insane logic.
1: He forgot that he he was not the owner, but that he owes everything to God.
0: This is a... Christian trope and a Christian idea that even Christians who say these things don't actually believe. Okay, the the idea they 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 take umbrage at the idea that you could do anything, that you could have success. Remember earlier in this sermon, he says God is the one who gave him a bumper, bumper crop. Really, because. I suspect this farmer was a hardworking farmer who did all of the things that hardworking farmers have to do in order to get a bumper crop. It's just like that anything, anytime something good happens, the Christian story is, hey, you didn't do anything. God God gave you that. And when something bad happens, it's because you're an evil sinner. <laughs> but that bumper crop, that has nothing to do with you getting up at four every morning and pulling a plow behind you <laughs> because your mule died the other day. It has nothing to do with any of that.
1: We are only stewards. Don't miss that important lesson. It's not your money. Yes, it is. They're not your automobiles.
0: Yes, they are. It's
1: not your house. Yes, it is. They're not your kids. Somebody go praise God for that. I'm kidding. Shouldn't kid about kids, right? They're a blessing. But they don't belong to me. They belong to God. They're only loaned to me for a short period of time. Your children are God's children. Your wife is God's wife. Your husband belongs to God. God only gives us our things in trust. We're stewards. And this foolish farmer forgot that. And and by the way, who is more dependent on God than a farmer? Talking to a farmer here in the valley, and he said because of the lack of rain this year, a lot of his crops were destroyed and gone.
0: The lack of... Rain has nothing to do with God.
1: Even Christians
0: who hang around here would probably agree with that in a debate, because then you're you're just saying that God is picking and choosing uh, winners, you know, and using the weather as as some kind of unnatural tool to punish our or reward. Christians have inveighed against this type of teaching particularly when atheists bring it up. <laughs> but, but here it is in a sermon. You know, it's, it's God. It, it's all God. Farmers depend on God more than anyone else because it's the weather.
1: Right? And it was a complete loss. And I thought, wow, that's pretty crazy that you, you, you lose everything because it just doesn't rain. And how dependent a farmer is upon the rain and upon the soil and upon the weather. And when you get a bumper crop, if anyone should get on their knees and say, thank you, God. It should be this foolish farmer. It should actually read that his crops brought forth in abundance. He got on his knees and he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and let all that is within me bless His holy name. Amen? When you look at the blessings that God has given you, do you get on your knees and give Him thanks when... Moses spoke to the children of Israel about their going into the promised land. And he said, look, you're going to inherit houses you didn't build. And you're going to inherit vineyards you didn't plant. And you're going to inherit wells you didn't dig that you're going to drink of. And when you are in that land flowing with milk and honey, Moses said this, beware, take heed, that you don't forget God. Just
0: a smallish note, the reason they were going to inherit Uh, fertile land that they didn't work is because they stole it.
1: Such wise counsel. Have you drifted away from a thankful heart? Have you forgotten the principle that you're only a steward? You don't own anything? That it all belongs to God? Your time, your talent, your treasure, and you say, God, what do you want me to do with these things? Let me give you the second reason he was a fool. He was a fool because he thought only of the present pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure. Notice it in verse 19. He said to Himself, and you know that when you're talking to yourself, you're also pretty crazy. He said, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Stop right there. Now, is there anything wrong with resting? No. Praise God for rest. Before church even started this morning, I told my wife, I'm coming home to take a nap after church. That's my one vision for the day. My one goal for the day. Sleep time. Nothing wrong with taking your ease. Nothing wrong with retirement as long as God is not left out of your retirement. One commentary I was reading actually said this is the only place the Bible talks about retirement. The foolish farmer. Take thine ease. Nothing wrong with eating. Nothing wrong with drinking. Nothing wrong with being married. But when God is not a part of the picture, that's when it becomes... Sinful, that's what we call hedonism.
0: Okay, so just a note, anytime you take pleasure from work that you have done and you don't immediately put God into the picture somehow, uh, artificially inserting him into the picture, then you're a hedonist. In the story, it does not say the man wasn't thinking about anyone else. It just says, this seems like a good time for an early retirement. I don't have to work so hard now. I don't have to pull that plow every morning at four o'clock now because I've got a bumper crop. That's all the story says. You have to bring to the table some condition of his heart that excludes everyone else from
1: his plans. Hedonism is the philosophy that's so prevalent in our culture today that pleasure is the chief goal Of life, that all we do is live for pleasure. What makes me feel good? Doesn't matter if it's good for others. Doesn't matter if it hurts others. Doesn't matter what goes on. Doesn't matter if God approves. I just want to do what I want to do. I want to live my life my way. That's hedonism. The foolish farmer was a hedonist. But write down number three. Why was he foolish? Because he forgot about the gravity of life.
0: And here he comes the scare the
1: tactics. of life. Look at, again with me at verse 19. At verse 19, he says, you have much good, still talking to himself, laid up for, here's his mistake, many years. This is what is called a false security. And that's why riches are dangerous. Because they can develop a false security and lead to a lack of dependency upon God.
0: Okay. Here, I think, is the the real problem, the real problem in the story. The man was so wealthy, he became so successful, that the implication is he didn't have to depend on God for his day-to-day existence. At the end of this story, after the story, this is uh, where Luke uh, has Jesus... Saying uh, something that's very familiar to most people seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, It kind of goes into that. Um, And so the, the implication is that if you have a lot of money, especially money saved up, wealth, you know, deep wealth, so that you don't have to worry about things in life anymore that require money. Then you're not depending on Jesus anymore. You're depending on your wealth. I I think this this is the the real heart of what Jesus is trying to say in the story, and this is the, the crime of this man. This is why it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because from Jesus' perspective, once you have a lot of money you don't you you start to think that you don't need God anymore well there's no indication that this man had some kind of uh unhealthy relationship with money. He just had so much of it at this point money crops that he didn't have to work so hard for a long time. And he can say to himself, just like many of you want to say to yourself, I can do an early retirement now. My family and I can go on vacation now. We can uh, spend more quality time together. You know, whatever it is you think that you want to do when you uh, retire early. Maybe the thing you want to do is just uh, rest your aching back and knees because you've been working in construction, physical labor for so long and now you've got enough money and you can, you can stop beating up your body that way. There's nothing, in fact, wrong with that unless you're the man in this story. And you must then, because the Bible doesn't say, you must then have some problem, some heart condition that makes you greedy and covetous and not reliant on God. It's an interesting logic, especially since earlier he said God's the one who gave the man the bumper crop. Well, why did God give the man so much wealth if he knew the man would turn around and then stop relying on God? If, if that's your problem, then it seems that God is doing something cruel to give wealth to people. Especially people he knows can't handle the wealth. Now, once again, this is kind of christian thinking as if somehow you can't handle the wealth i'm 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 not suggesting that for myself but christians talk this way so christians uh tell me why would god even give the man the bumper crop just to turn around and punish the man for having the bumper crop
1: i do not i don't ever want to be in a place Then I'm not humbly dependent upon God. Amen. I want God to keep me in a place where I must depend upon Him and trust in Him and keep looking to me. I have a tendency
0: that's just victim thinking right there.
1: To depend on other things, to drift away from that. I want to stay in dependence upon God. So he thought he had many years. You know, the Bible tells us that life is but a vapor, it appears for a moment and then vanishes away. The Bible says that life is like a flower that springs up fresh in the morning and then it withers with the noonday heat. You talk about heat. Flowers are withering right now. They don't last through the day of the heat of the day. James said, go to now ye that are rich and say, we're going to go to such a city and we're going to buy and we're going to sell and we're going to make gain. He said, you don't know what a day may bring forth. You make your plans. You devise your scheme. But you don't bring God into the picture. None of us know the time that we will die. Think about that if God actually told you when you were going to die. How that would change the way you live. If God came to you tonight and today that said, tonight you are dead. What would you do the rest of the day?
0: You know, just as an interesting thought experiment, why doesn't God come to you and tell you when you're going to die. If if the implication is that you are going to get your life right and, and you're going to do meaningful things when you realize that your death is imminent, then why not provide that warning?
1: Why not? How would it change your heart and your attitude? We don't have a lease on life. None of you, when you say, see you tomorrow, you don't know that you're going to see him tomorrow. You might go home and go to bed and die in your sleep. No one has a lease on life. None of us know the day we will die. But this man plans so far into the future. How many times people do that? Wow, we finally reached retirement. We have this wonderful nest egg. We're going to buy an RV. We're going to travel around the country. We're going to do what we want to do. And that's fine, but you don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, in my own life, this just this week, again, as I was... Studying this parable, it spoke to my own heart about the brevity of life and, and how much time I have left. And I looked back in my life and I honestly felt some regret and grief of times and places and things that I did that were wasted. And that I wasn't more devoted to serving God and more committed to the things of the kingdom. And I pray, God, help me these last few years that I have here, if you should tarry, To spend my days serving you and busy about the things of your kingdom, to investing what you've entrusted to me in the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 20, God said to this foolish farmer, Tonight, tonight your soul shall be required of you. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So he forgot that life was short. And then here's the fourth reason the man was a fool he forgot his own mortality. He forgot his own mortality. Look at
0: Aren't we just kind of double dipping at this point? Uh, point number three, life is short. Point number four, you're going to die. In
1: verse 20, he said to his soul, he, thy, uh, God said to him, excuse me, thy soul shall be required of thee. Now, the Bible says that it's appointed unto everyone once to die, every one of us have an appointment. And then after that, we will stand before God in judgment. Now, you might be able to avoid taxes, but you can't avoid death, right? Who is he who lives and shall not see death? Who can save his soul from the hand of the grave? And the answer is no one. Everyone living will die. The statistics on death are quite impressive. Ten out of every ten people living will die. But we don't want to think about that. You know, when you're young, you don't think about the brevity of life, and when you're young, you don't think about the certainty of death. That's why the Bible actually said it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a wedding. Now we all love weddings, right? We love to see the beautiful weddings and rejoice and celebrate, but you know, it's more valuable to go to a funeral. Why? Because that's where we're headed. You see that casket? maybe it's an open casket sometimes that person looks so nice and they look happy and they look content but they're they're not there anymore they've gone into eternity whenever you look down into that casket remind yourself that one day that will be you and you don't know when you have no idea i just thought i would encourage you all this morning <laughs> After church, what did the preacher pitch on today? He said, I'm going to be in the casket real soon. <laughs> Scary. But you want to be wise and not be a fool? Prepare to meet your maker. Be ready for eternity. When we take a vacation, we plot it out, and we plan it out, we have it all mapped out, you know, we go to AAA and get our maps, but yet we don't prepare for when we die.
0: Okay the the last couple of weeks we were taught that this idea of living on eternally is, is merely metaphor in the bible and that it is not actually true
1: I, I, don't, I don't so the man is a fool because he forgot his own mortality and then lastly fifthly He forgot you can't take your possessions with you in death.
0: Here's another point about death.
1: I don't know what it is. We have this idea that we accumulate wealth and do we think that we're going to take it with us? You ever seen a funeral procession with a U-Haul trailer attached to the hurts? Old proverb, there's no pockets and shrouds. We can't take it with us. You heard the story about the rich, rich, rich man that died and someone said, how much did he leave? And the person said, everything. He didn't take anything with him. We get to this idea we can take it with us. We can't. So he forgot that he can't take his possessions with him. God actually asked him a question in verse 20, and I love it, "...whose shall thine things be which thou hast provided?" You know, go home today and look around your house and say, When I die, are my kids going to appreciate this? Are they going to value this, or are they just going to have a big rummage sale, you know? Is it going to be garbage weighting them down? You know, oh, look at all the junk we have to clean up, you know. These were your treasures, but another man's junk. God help us to remember our mortality, to remember the brevity of life, to remember that we can't take these things with us. Now the conclusion of the parable in verse 21 I've called the problem. So we have the purpose of the parable verse 13 to 15. We have the picture of covetousness verse 16 to 20. And then thirdly and lastly we have the problem Jesus wraps it up for us in verse 20. Here's the conclusion. He says so is he that lays up treasures for himself. Notice the problem is that these treasures are laid up for Himself by the way, these are the temporal that is this world laid up for yourself and is not, here's the problem, rich toward God. So the problem is that he was not rich toward God. And by the way, all these other reasons I gave for him being a fool are caused because of this one problem, he forgot God. He was not rich toward God. Because he wasn't rich toward God, he only saw himself. He didn't see his mortality. He didn't see the brevity of life. He didn't see the material things can't be taken with you into heaven. So he was not rich toward God. Now whether you are rich or poor in this world, what matters most is that you are rich toward God. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. For where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust can't corrupt, and thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. So where are your riches lying? In this world? Or in the world to come? Now, what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, for the Christian, it means that we invest in serving the Lord. Our time, our talent, and our treasures.
0: So what does it mean to invest your time, talent, and treasures in serving the Lord? Can we drill down on that a little bit?
1: Maybe you don't have money. Maybe you just have time. Serve the Lord. Maybe you have a talent or a gift that God has given you. Use it for the glory of God and for the good of others, for the building up of the church.
0: Okay, why, first of all, Use it for the glory of God. What does this glory monster need with your use of your talent in time to glorify him? How how does that help him in any way? I mean, that seems like the kind of thing a vain king would be interested in. But a God? Why? Why are you using your time, talent, and treasures in his service at all. He doesn't need your time, uh, talent, and service, does he? What this really means, um, this is just a a buzzword, a way of saying you should donate everything to the church. Give us your money. When we have a project, uh, we don't want to hire contractors. Give us your time. (laughs) uh you know we've got this big music production uh going on some of you accomplished musicians give us your talent mostly for free serving god these days when you when you hear it preached in a context like this usually just means uh, give it all to the church we own it all
1: maybe god has given you treasures god has entrusted you a lot of wealth that's a great responsibility not only a privilege but a responsibility use it for the kingdom of heaven so if you're a christian you're rich toward god when you're rich in good works and you're serving him but if you're
0: again there's just a little bit of confusion uh that christians need to sort out and so i would love for someone in the comments to maybe explain this a little bit on the one hand jesus says it is easier for a camel to enter the uh, through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. So why on earth would God ever bless anyone, quote-unquote bless anyone, with wealth?
1: Not a Christian. Let me say this. You need to get right with God. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to have the riches of God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, the text doesn't say this, but I would venture to say it. I believe it. That the inferences in this text, that the man died and went to hell.
0: Here we go. There, if, if you're waiting for. Uh, the real payoff in this man's sermon. I, I think he preached this entire sermon just to get to this point. And, and thank thank goodness for this man for at least having the integrity to say, now, this story doesn't say this. It would have been nice if he had had the integrity to say that about, oh, say, 95% of his sermon. Because the story didn't say any of that either. Uh, but this is the man's real heartfelt belief and this is the message that he wants to leave you with as he starts this kind of longish wind-down. This man went to hell. Never mind what you think hell is. What do you think this man thinks hell
1: is? The foolish farmer was foolish because he wasn't rich toward God. He didn't know God. He didn't have a personal relationship with God. He didn't love God with all his heart. He wasn't saved. He was lost. The Bible says you can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, it profits you nothing. In other words, you're a foolish person. I believe this farmer died and went to hell. And that's the reason why this man was foolish. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you haven't been born again, your sins aren't forgiven, you don't know that if you died, you would go to heaven... You don't know beyond any shadow of doubt that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Then you need to get right with Him. You need to get rich toward God. The Bible says "As Jesus, though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. That through His poverty, we might be made rich. Through His poverty is a reference to His death on the cross. It's a reference to His incarnation. And through His crucifixion. That Jesus came from heaven, took on a body, and died upon a cross. And when He died on the cross, I want you to know this this morning, He died for your sins. The Bible says all have sinned and all have fallen short. The Bible says there's no one righteous. No, not one. We're separated from God from sin. That's why we're trying to fill the emptiness and the void in our life with things. And nothing satisfies. But Jesus died in your place to pay for your sins and He was buried. And the Bible says He rose from the dead and He ascended back into heaven. And that He ever lives to forgive you and to give you the hope of heaven eternal life. Have you made plans beyond the grave? Have you made plans for what happens when you die? I'm not talking about a trust or a will or putting your name on furniture so your kids will know who gets what. I'm talking about your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know that when you die that you're in heaven. That's the only thing that really matters. Everything that we see, the Bible says, is temporal.
0: Okay, is there a literal heaven or not?
1: But that which is unseen is eternal. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor John, I don't know that if I died, I'd go to heaven. I don't know that I'm really forgiven. I don't know that I'm saved. Then you're not rich toward God.
0: Interesting, um, Interesting things to just kind of smash together. Being rich, tart, God is, is actually a nonsense term, and you can just make up whatever you think that means. But in this case, in this, sermon, uh, in this particular sermon's conclusion, if you don't know for sure 100% that you'll go to heaven when you die, heaven, whatever that is, if you think that you might actually burn in hell for all eternity, then you need to get
1: rich toward God. Or you are and you don't know it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to get right with God this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to be rich toward God. In verse 21, Jesus is saying there's two worlds. There's this world, the temporal, and the eternal world, heaven.
0: Okay, again, this is just one of these casual things that Christians say. Oh, yeah, there, there is this other world, this other realm. And, and they say that by faith because it says so in a book.
1: Which are you living for? Where's your treasures lie? Are you rich only in this world or are you rich toward God? Don't be a fool. Don't forget God. Death is certain. Life is short. John 3.16 says, For God so what? Love the world, that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever what believes in him shall never perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Please don't leave this church service this morning. Don't be a fool. Don't listen to the story of the foolish farmer and be a fool yourself. Get right with God. Get rich toward God. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.
0: Okay. And uh, we will stop there. He has a few final words to say uh, to the video camera after his message. Uh, I'm looking and I'm at about an hour or 10 right now. Uh, so I also had a few words to say, but we've gone a little bit long and I've got stuff to do. So um, I think I'm going to let it close at that. I am sorry that this is coming out a little bit late if there's a little bit of wonkiness in my audio uh, today, in in the next few weeks, I'm um, making some some adjustments in my studio, so things might get worse before they get better. But uh, the audio quality should be improving over the course of time. Uh, no need to write me; I already know. I'll try to massage out as uh, many of the rough patches as possible. I appreciate your patience. As uh, as I go through this transition, speaking of transition, uh, my leg, it is what it is. I am around. The infection is gone, so that's good. The doctor has given me permission to uh, walk around with a walker as long as I put no more than half my weight on the leg. What is half your weight, by the way? How can, how can you just tell? I think this is about half my weight right here. At any rate, um, I've been trying to do that, but I can tell you, I I hurt worse now than I than I have um, in a while. So I've probably overdone something. Um, It's it's a long, slow healing process, but I think that things are ultimately moving in a positive direction. So I thank all of you for all of your uh, donations and thoughts. And with that, we will see you next time.